Well, hey, it's, a, it's such a privilege to be with you guys for the third week and always love getting to come down here and spend time with Antioch Austin. You really have a great thing going, so thank you for inviting me, letting me share these few weeks with you. I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, I know this time of year, it's like school's back, right? So who else is a student, college student? Raise your hand. Can we get some? Okay, awesome. And then if you're a parent, um, I know for you, you have a little student. You're not, you guys are big students, but you have um, elementary schools, high schools, middle schools. They're all kicking up again. Uh, so this is the time of year when, when life tends to feel kind of busy and full, right? Um, and it's always for me, I, I go from this very relaxed um, July to it, it feels like I blink and August is crazy. And last week was one of those weeks. It was a very rich and full week. Uh, but man, I, I left so encouraged. Um, one of the, the great things that I get to do is I partner with Clark Zonbrecher. You guys know Clark and Natalie. They're pillars here in this church. Good, good round of applause for Clark. Um, he leads um, and directs a, a um, leadership training program for people in the Antioch Network, our network of churches. And um, we had, I, I think this is for people who they come in and they do uh, two years of, of study and growth of learning how to do ministry. And I think we had 25 people kick off our new fall cohort. And we had this retreat in Waco, and man, it was so powerful. Um, but, but Clark can tell you as well, the power in it, at least for me, was hearing the testimonies of the people that were there. And I feel like I'm just looking, like as people are sharing, I don't even know what else we talked about. And I was one of the ones who talked because I was so caught up in these just testimonies of the grace of God of the people who were sharing. We had people from California to New England and everywhere in between. So a lot of geographic diversity but what stood out to me was the background. We had at least three, maybe four people who their testimony is that they came to faith in prison. And they're sharing this story. I mean, several of them had the same story that age 11, 12, 13, they started using drugs and then shortly thereafter dealing drugs. They ended up in gangs, ended up in prison somewhere in their teenage years. And they just described this life of, you know, five, 10 years of that was their lifestyle ended up in prison. And while they're in prison, they met with God powerfully. He brought a redemption, but then coming out of prison, you know, it's very difficult for people to make that transition back. The church stepped in, cared for them, loved them, discipled them. So that today, decade later, for I think all three of them, decade later, they're walking in freedom and God's using them to lead others to freedom. I mean, isn't that amazing? It's the gospel. One guy is in Los Angeles and he grew up in East LA, very rough neighborhood. Um, was a gang member in this particular place, you know, shot at, all, all the hard things. And now part of the reason why he's with us training is he feels the Lord leading him to go plant a church in the same neighborhood where he was a gang member. Another guy is in Waco, and he's been on our staff in Waco for a while, was a drug dealer in Waco for a long time, got, you know, completely turned his life around. That was 10 years ago, went on, got a college degree, a master's, and now what he does is he helps other people find addiction, uh, freedom from addiction to drugs. That's his ministry. Then a third guy is at Antioch Houston, and he leads Antioch Prison Ministry. And what he does, he was incarcerated for 20 years. And what he does is he now goes back into the prison system, starting churches and starting life groups. And I mean, there's, I don't even know how many, how many groups have started. I heard a testimony this week from Waco where they, they started, they reached somebody in the county jail. That person was so touched and impacted, their entire family ended up at church the next Sunday. I mean, just the grace of God being poured out. And I love testimonies like this because that's the gospel lived out in the flesh, right? It's the people the world has forgotten, the people who you hear their lives, you're like, you had no chance. And yet God, his arm is not too short to save. He can show up in a prison cell where they've been forgotten. He can redeem their life, turn them around, they become a tapestry of his grace, reaching back into the same places, bringing the light of the gospel. Praise God. I wonder if in our generation, you know, I study revivals and I wonder if the prison system is where the next revival is coming. 
have heard incredible testimonies of what God is doing, and God tends to move in the places where we are not looking because God delights in moving in the people that we've overlooked. Amen? Well, this morning, I share that testimony because it just encouraged me, um, but also it ties into our passage. We're going to go back into the book of Acts, continuing our series. And um, last week, we concluded Acts 15. Today, we're going to go through virtually the entirety of Acts 16. So it's a pretty long chapter. And central to this chapter is the story of a few people in prison finding a breakthrough. And if you want to kind of put a header over this message, we're talking about breakthrough this morning. And I just shared you three testimonies of breakthrough of people who met God in prison. Now, there is one really big distinction here that the story we're going to read in scripture, they are in prison because of persecution. My three friends, it was because of crime. But either way, God is able to bring a breakthrough in unlikely places. And I want to learn what does it mean for us to live that kind of a life where we see the breakthrough of God. Now, it's a very long passage, and so we're going to do this. We're going to read it in three chunks, and the first two sections, I'm not going to maybe teach it quite as thoroughly just because I want to really build it. The main part of the passage is Acts 16, 25 through 34, so that's really where we're going to end up in, but I don't think you can understand it if we don't see the rest of the passage. So why don't you join me? We're going to start off reading Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 6. We're going to read through 15 for this first part. It says this, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas, and during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed there several days. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Okay, a lot going on here. Uh, a lot of names that are hard to say. Here's a little preacher trick. I just make it up, you know? So it's like, if you're reading that, you're like, Troas and Mycenae, like, what is he even talking about? And that's actually kind of the problem, isn't it? Sometimes when we read scripture, the distance between us and the story makes us hard, hard to understand what's actually going on. Like, these cities don't mean much to you, do they? But, you know, if I was to tell you a story and I'm like, we went down to Denton, then we drove over to Waxahachie, and then, you know, like that means something to you because you know what we're talking about. Does that make sense? And I find sometimes in scripture that, you know, the apostles or the people we read about, Paul and Silas, like they have this almost mythical superhero quality to them. You, you kind of picture them, they were like led around, and there was this fire of the Holy Spirit, and they followed it, and they were, it, like the way they lived is just inaccessible to the rest of us. Like we couldn't do it their way, because they never knew where they were going, and the Holy Spirit just directed them to these cities that don't, we can't even pronounce their names, and no one knows where they are, and all this kind of stuff, right? But the more you study it, you realize like what they were doing was pretty normal. Like they were going to normal places, and, and they actually had a, a pretty good reason for why they were doing it. Paul's missionary methods, like his journey, the way that he did things, Rome had a pretty extensive highway system. Like, think like a very small road, but still, they maintained it well, it was safe, which was a big deal in those days. And so what Paul was doing is he was just following the Roman road to the next city. 
Does that make sense? So it'd be like the equivalent of you starting in Denton. You felt like God called me like, all right, go preach the gospel. So you're like, all right, I'll start in Denton. I guess I don't know where else to start. You went down to Dallas, then you went to Waxahachie, then you went to Waco, then you went, uh, where'd you keep going? Temple next, you end up in Georgetown, then Austin, and then you're about to go down to San Marcos, and that's when the Holy Spirit says, nope, no further, I got something else. I want you to take your car, drive over to Galveston, get on a boat, and go to New Orleans. Like that, that is, if we're translating the place names to stuff that we do understand, that's kind of what's happening here in this story. Now, here's what I like about this. As I like to demystify the way that they lived, because I start to realize I can live that way too. Uh, you guys remember Chris Paget preached a message, I think four weeks ago, where he talked about Acts 13 and 14, you know, this missionary sending. And, and so the Holy Spirit speaks, like, I want you guys to go live this life of mission. Paul and Barnabas are sent out, and the first place they went was Cyprus, which is an island off the coast of Israel. You know why they went there? Because that's where Barnabas was from. He just went home. Like it wasn't some, you know, crazy thing that you can never figure out what to do. He just took the next logical step. Then they went inland to this place called Poseidon Antioch. And the reason they went there, they found this archaeology thing. The guy they led to the Lord in Cyprus owned land at this other city. So most likely he's like, hey, this is really cool. I'm going to tell you and introduce you to my neighbors back home. Can you go talk to them? They go talk to them. They get kicked out of that city. They just walk down to the road to the next city and they kept going. Like that's really Paul's missionary journeys in a nutshell. And here's, I think, the relevant to us. Sometimes we get it in our heads that we have to wait for some dramatic experience like we read about this morning to get started. But you got to remember, Paul got started a long time ago before he had a dramatic experience. And I, I read this, and what challenges me is most of the Christian life is just taking the next step. For Paul, that was literally taking the next step on a road. But that's most of the Christian life. It's like you're a student. God wants to use you on your campus. You know, and I don't know what that looks like, but it's probably the way you live your life, the way you treat your neighbor. And there's probably going to be opportunities to share your testimony. Like that is you following Paul's missionary journey. You're in the workplace. It's probably showing up, living with integrity in the workplace. It's probably you showing up, being an example in your life, not being greedy for money. You know, the, the, just your lifestyle, like your coworkers, they notice who you are as a person. It's probably you taking time to be interested in your coworkers, asking them about their lives. You know, most people never have somebody do that. And in the course of that, you're going to have an opportunity to share your testimony. Like this isn't rocket science. This is just taking the next step where God has assigned you. However, there is a time in life where the Holy Spirit shows up and you're just taking the next step and he's like, hold up, I got something different. He stops you and you have to be obedient. And so for Paul, this only happened once or twice in his life. But for our purpose this morning, I think it's important to point out that when it happened, he obeyed. This is you're taking the next logical step. And then the Lord says, I actually want you to go overseas right now. You're like, oh, that was not on my grid. But yes, Lord, you've said it, I'll go. And that's what Paul and Barnabas, that's what they're doing, is they're taking the next step. Now, a little cool thing in our passage, you probably didn't catch this, it takes a while of reading it, but um, through most of Acts up to this point, it's talking about Paul and Silas, or Paul and Barnabas, and it says they traveled. But I think it's in verse 8, it shifts to we traveled. Luke, the author of Acts, it seems like at this point, this becomes his personal story. Now he's with them, traveling with them. Doesn't have much relevance to our passage, but it's cool, so I thought I'd point it out. Okay, so they're responding to God. Their life is spirit-led. And what happens? They get this vision of a man begging, come to Macedonia and help us. And what's this speaking to people who are desperate for God to come and intervene in their life? You know, I think one of the things that holds me back is that I, deep down inside, am not convinced that our world desperately needs the gospel of Jesus. 
Like, don't get me wrong, in my head I know that's true, but that doesn't always work its way into our heart, where we have faith that the answer to this world is the saving grace that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we can start to have this perspective that, man, I can't show up there with the gospel because they're going to reject me. They're not going to want to talk to me. And, you know, we start to think like there, there's these closed places where people aren't open. They're not hungry there. And I don't know about you, but that's the perception I can get. My family, we had this cool opportunity last summer. We spent five months in San Francisco, in the San Francisco area. And, you know, you think about places in the United States, if you look with the eyes of your flesh, like you're like, man, that's kind of a godless or maybe even hostile towards God place. A lot of that's hype, but that's the perception. And when I showed up, do you know what I found? Yeah, it's godless, but people are hungry. And I've actually found the places that seem the most godless correspond to the places where there's the most hunger because a life without God makes you desperate and it makes you hungry for Jesus. Like I don't get intimidated by the parts of this world where people are far from God because I know in those places that's where they're begging, please come help us. That's why we're seeing revival in the prison system. Where people are far from God, they're hungry. I remember one night we're in, in, uh, we were outside of Palo Alto in the Bay Area. We're having dinner as a team. And one of the gals on our team just offered to pray for our waitress, like super basic, nothing fancy, no dramatic things happened. We forget about it. We, we you know, finish eating. We talk for 45 minutes. We're leaving to go get ice cream. And our, our waitress chases us down as we're walking out the door. And she's like, what just happened to me? We're like, was it good or bad? You know, <laughs> specify. She's like, no, when you prayed for me, like what, what did I just feel? And for 20 minutes, we're talking with her. And she's saying, like, I've been in this point in my life where I'm just spiritually searching and I don't know answers. Can you help me? It's the Macedonian call. Please, can you come help me? Right then and there, she gives her life to Jesus. Members of our team discipled her for a year. She just moved to Waco to do the discipleship school. We had her over for dinner last night. Isn't that cool? Guys, people are hungry. People want Jesus. They need Jesus. He's the only one that satisfies. And are we willing to take him? Are we willing to proclaim him where his name is not yet known? All right, so they show up to this place, and they end up, it says that they go to this river where they expect to find a place of prayer. So in these days, there was a Jewish population that was dispersed across the Roman Empire, and that actually goes back to the Old Testament when Israel was exiled. And so there were Jews living in the land of Israel, but much like it is today, the majority of Jewish peoples actually lived outside of Israel, and they predominantly lived in Roman cities in these small minority communities. And if there were enough Jewish people in a city, they would form a synagogue. That was kind of the center of worship and a place of connection. But if they did not have enough in a city, they'd establish a place of prayer. So what this tells us is Paul's going to this city, but normally Paul would go to the synagogue and preach, but there's not one. So God kind of messed him up a little bit by sending him to Philippi, because this was his normal MO. But he goes, he finds a place of prayer, and immediately they see this gal, Lydia, come to faith, and she ends up becoming an early leader in the church. I think what's interesting is she's also very clearly not the Macedonian man, right? So she's not a man. She's not the one that called him, but it's kind of this early sign of God's faith, uh, faithfulness and the fruit that was going to come. Okay, so that's, that's the context of our story. Uh, let's, let's get into the plot and figure out what actually happens here. Verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. And this girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. All right, so we're, we're, we're picking up this story, starting to see, see the plot of this story. So what happens? They're, they're, they're there. God led Lydia to the Lord, but they recognize there's more in this city that God is wanting to do. So they're going throughout the marketplace, and then this slave girl, I'm guessing she was a teenager, she starts to follow them around, and it says that, that she was possessed by this demonic spirit. Now, in, in the Greek language, it's literally a python spirit, which I know sounds weird, but it ties to Greek mythology. And it's not worth getting into all of it, but the Greeks, they worshiped this god named Apollos, and there's this kind of mythical story of him doing battle with a giant snake. And in this battle, somehow, it has to do with being able to tell the future. So what are they saying here? Like this girl has this demonic spirit. By this demonic spirit, she's able to interpret the future in some way. And, you know, it's tied to this shrine that was there, so they're, they're making good money off of it. And I think it's interesting that what she does is she follows Paul and Silas around and tells them the truth. Like these men are servants of the Most High God, so she's actually not lying. But eventually, Paul gets so frustrated by it that he turns around and casts this demon out of her. And I actually read you know, several different scholars like, why did Paul get frustrated? I mean, she's telling the truth, and there's a lot of different reasons for it. But let me tell you my theory, and I don't know if this is, if this is right. It's probably one of many. But here's what I think happened. You know, in this story, there's kind of that spooky element to it, right? Like Python spirit and all this stuff. Like, that's what you can focus on. And what you can miss is that we have a person who is severely oppressed. I mean, think about this girl. She's a literal slave. So in her life, she is a slave. Her purpose is to earn somebody else money. Who knows how she was treated elsewhere? But on top of this slavery in her body, she was also a slave in her spirit where she is possessed by a demon. So her spirit is in chains. Her body is in chains. There is nothing about her that is free. And I just have to wonder if Paul looked at her and he said, enough, enough. This person created in the image of God, trapped in this kind of bondage. This is not right. Set her free. And he cast this demon out of her. And I love it. You know, I love the heart of God because that's what God does. And remember how they ended up in Macedonia. It was someone begging them, please come help. You know, I wonder if that's tied to her in some way. Like, there's no way for her to free herself. Even if you could free her from her literal slavery, she's still stuck in her spiritual slavery and vice versa. Like, she is trapped with no hope. She needed someone to step in her world and be willing to speak the word of God. I want to give a shout out um, because there's people in our midst who you do this. And a shout out for Unbound Now. It's our anti-human trafficking agency. That's worthy of an applause. Liz Griffin directs it here in Austin, and we just launched the Austin chapter, but it's a ministry of the Antioch movement, and I believe to date we, we've been able to advocate for more than 2,000 survivors, or it's some number like that, where we've gotten into similar people's worlds, and we were able to step into their life. It's very messy, very painful, very difficult. You don't always get the outcome you want, but it's that same desire to say, enough, I'm not willing to just look at this and turn the other way. I'm going to step into your world, and you guys do that. Thank you. Those of you who give, those of you who serve with Unbound Now, thank you. Like, I think it's one way that we get to be the body of Christ and live out the book of Acts is by being unwilling to not turn aside and say, enough of that. God is big enough and he wants to set people free. But what happens to Paul and Silas for their bravery? 
they ended up having to trade their freedom for her freedom. Because in this story, when they stepped into their world, what they ended up doing, and we don't know what happened to this girl other than the demonic spirit left her. I don't know what happened to the rest of her life. But in doing this act, they end up getting dragged in front of a mob. Why? Because her slave owners were used to making money off of her. They didn't care about her religion. They cared about their money. And when they took away their chance to make money, this girl had no more value to them. And so somebody had to pay the price for that. That tends to be what happens when you interrupt oppression. And so Paul and Silas Now they have traded their freedom for hers, and they were brutally treated for it. So not only did they have the whole town yelling and screaming at them, which is not a fun experience to begin with, they end up getting flogged. And, you know, they said severely flogged. That'd be like 39 lashes or more, so they're back, you know, just, you can imagine what that would look like at the end. Then they get sent into a jail cell, and I I told you stories about prison ministry earlier. Don't think an American prison. For as bad as ours may be, this is infinitely worse. When you went into a jail like this, that the jail wouldn't take care of you. So if you wanted food, you better hope you had family that would bring you food. You know, in this case, their arms or hands are shackled. They're in an inner cell, probably no sunlight. Their wounds were not treated, so they still had open wounds on their back. I'm almost positive they would not have been fed. That was their condition where they ended in this jail cell towards the end of this story. Their freedom traded for her freedom. And you know what struck me about this? The only reason they are in this situation is why? Because they said yes to God. You ever feel like that? Like, I said yes to you, God. I wasn't planning to end up in a dungeon. Like, I mean, it's an extreme example, but this is what life can feel like sometimes. We say yes to God. We allow him to redirect us. Like, I was really happy to drive down to San Marcos. Why am I in New Orleans? Like, God, the only reason I'm here is because I was trying to obey what you told me to do. So why am I in a jail cell for it? Why did this not turn out? Where's that guy begging? What must I do to be saved? Like, why is this story not unfolding the way that I thought it would? And friends, I think for those of us who want to see breakthrough, who want to partner with God in his mission and his purposes, this is a pretty fundamental question of what do we do when we say yes to God and we end up in the jail cell? How do we respond in that moment? And we're going to look at Paul and, and Silas here in a minute, what they did, but I also, I want to highlight someone here in your own midst, and that's uh, Pastors J.D. and Liz. And they're not here today. I wish they could. But when I think of friends that I know, people that I look up to, what stands out to me about their life is that they've lived this way. You know, if you don't know, J.D. planted Antioch's original church in Seattle. And this was before we had training. And we still don't have money, but we definitely didn't back then. And we sent him out with no training, no money. They ended up in Seattle. And man, it was tough. I'm not even going to try to tell his stories. It's a lot funnier when he tells it, but you can ask him sometime. But it didn't work out immediately the way they thought. It was painful. It was hard. He didn't get thrown in jail, but he had about everything else happen to him. And today, there's three churches in Seattle that are thriving, seeing a move of God in that city because of their yes. This so encourages me, and I can look at their life and over and over again. I've known J.D. for a long time, and that's what always stands out to me is he says yes to God, and even when that yes is costly, he doesn't quit. So I commend him to you as a church as an example of how we live this life of endurance and perseverance and continuing to say yes with God, even when it comes at a cost. But he's not the only one. Paul and Silas do the same thing. So let's read what happens to them. All right, so remember, backs are beaten, they're in jail, it's dark, they're hungry, hurting. About midnight, this is verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, just like you would be doing. And the other prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And all at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison's doors open, he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself. 
because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out, and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, then immediately he and all of his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy. He had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Well, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jail with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens. They threw us into prison, and now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Amen. I mean, this is an incredible story, right? It's like a superhero movie. You know, like they're in the prison cell, they're oppressed, like it looks like the bad guys have won, and then boom, God shows up, the walls come tumbling down. It's like Jericho all over again. The walls come down, you know, they're freed. It's this incredible vindication moment of the power of God vindicating his servants so they can walk out of there in freedom. And I think it would be easy to internalize the message when you're trapped in prison, it's time to praise and that will be your breakthrough. That's a good message, okay? So don't get me wrong, like that, I, that's great advice and I think you see it elsewhere in scripture. But when I was reading and studying for this passage, I want to highlight that I don't think that's the story we're supposed to get this morning. And here's why. Who was the one who got the breakthrough when Paul and Silas came out of the jail cell? I don't think it was Paul and Silas. You know why? They were going to get freed the next morning anyway. They were Roman citizens. And back in those days, you couldn't beat or imprison a Roman citizen. And, if, and that's why they're so scared in this story. They may not, you know, the magistrate, they might not even have been citizens. And so if they got found out, if Paul pressed it, then those magistrates now, they're on the hook. They could potentially receive the punishment that Paul received. Like they had every inclination to get out of that as fast as possible. They made a big mistake. And Paul had that trump card the whole time. Paul didn't need the earthquake to find the breakthrough in this story. So who did? It was the jailer. It was the jailer who needed this. It was the jailer who needed the earthquake to find his freedom. Maybe the other prisoners, but if it hadn't have been for this moment, then he'd be trapped in darkness still. And do you see the irony of this? The jailer's the one in darkness, even though Paul and Silas are in the dark jail cell. The jailer's the one in chains, even though Paul and Silas have literal chains. Yeah, and you even see it after the story, the jailer's washing their back, but in the same verse, what happens? The jailer is washed in baptism. What's happening here? is you have a person who even though on the outside he looks free, in reality he's in chains, and you have somebody else who even though on the outside is in chains, in reality they are free. Paul and Silas didn't need the earthquake. They already had their breakthrough. They were there for somebody else's breakthrough. And I would submit to you guys, I think that Macedonian man begging, come help me, is the jailer from this story. I think he's the reason why God sent them to this jail cell. So you see, you know, kind of to, to round out the story, they said yes to God, and their yes landed them in a prison. But through their willingness to endure and continue to walk in faith, they saw a breakthrough that resulted in a slave girl being free from demons, in prisoners coming to faith, and a jailer and his whole family being saved. 
And in the end, they too found their freedom. I mean, it's an incredible story. So how do we apply it to our life? I have a problem, and maybe you have the same problem. You ready for it? I am willing to say yes to God, but I don't think I'm willing to go to jail. Right? Like, I'm willing to say yes to God, but my assumption is that my yes to God is going to lend to an immediate breakthrough in my life. Like, here's what I think is going to happen. Actually, I I took the liberty of editing our passage this morning. (laughs) I didn't change any words, all right? So let me give that disclaimer. Uh Uh-oh, hold on, I just lost it. I I didn't change any of the words um, when I edited the passage, and so um, I just removed a few. And I know you're saying that's kind of a dangerous thing to do in Scripture, and I agree, but hold on one second, let me get my... My newts back. Let me, let me read my edited version. We're going to start towards the beginning. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they went and met the man and he asked, sir, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Then immediately he and his whole household were baptized. So the man brought him into his house, set a meal before him, and was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. That's my version of Christianity. I even get a meal out of the deal. Like, this is amazing, you know? It's like, we love you, Drew. Thank you. We all want to come to faith. And and can you, you know, let us feed you. It's like, that's how we expect life is going to look. And maybe, maybe you're not like me. And I've met enough of you to know that you are, all right? So there's something in our psyche where we assume that we're doing God a favor by saying yes to him, and therefore that our yes is going to lend itself to an immediate breakthrough. I allow myself to be inconvenienced to take the boat to New Orleans, and so there's going to be a revival when I get there. Not, I'm going to get there, they're going to hate me and throw me in jail. That's how we tend to think. And the problem with that way of thinking is then, when life inevitably turns out differently, that's when we quit and when we bail. We say yes to see the breakthrough, but then we don't see it all the way through. And ultimately, we miss out on the fullness of what God had intended to accomplish in that moment. You know, and I could point to so many examples from my own life where this has been the case, and nothing as dramatic as this story. Uh, so I'm almost hesitant to preach out of it because I'm like, I have friends overseas who this is literally what happens to them, and I have so much honor but nonetheless, still hard. I remember I'll, I'll use one from college in honor of college kicking back up. Um, my first two years, God did this really deep work in my heart, freshman and sophomore year. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, I was living with my best friends. We were all going for it with God our sophomore year. Just a real golden time in my life. So my junior year, I, I was like, okay, God, I, I want to branch out. I want to say yes. I felt God inviting me to, to spend time investing my life and making disciples with others. So I invited some guys who are not as close to the Lord, but who expressed hunger to get to know God more to live with me. So I left this house of all my best friends. I move into this other house with some guys that were younger than me. I start reaching out to them. And it basically, the entire thing bombed. And, you know, there was no discipleship that really took place at varying levels. I mean, I'm still close with some of those guys. I remember one guy in particular, shortly after moving in, he decided that he wanted to just embrace the party lifestyle instead. And so my discipleship house turned into a halfway party house. He'd have his friends over. They'd drink till like 2 or 3 in the backyard, 2 or 3 a.m. in the backyard, I should specify playing loud music. I mean, it was like, I'm lying in bed thinking, I I intended to make this move. I left the house of my friends so that I can invest in you, and now you're keeping me up at night, and that's all I got out of this deal. I remember getting back from a mission trip that year where I had been one of the leaders, and I'm just dead tired. I show up, and one of my roommates is in the kitchen, drunk, and just starts mocking me as soon as I walk in the door. 
Like, I don't even have the safety of my own house to, to rest. You know, and it's like moments like that. It's, in the grand scheme of Paul and Silas, it's nothing. But if you say yes to God, you're going to have moments like that. And my question is, what do you do in moments like that? How do you keep saying yes? When you're like, God, my yes is the whole reason I'm in this. I should have just said no, and my life would be a lot more peaceful. And I would love to tell you that in that story, I found great resolution. I didn't. I hope and pray that that guy's doing well in God, but I don't know. But I do know that a lifestyle of continuing to say yes did result in a lot of people experiencing the grace of God. And my worry for us is that we're conditioned for fast food fruit. We think it's going to be fast and easy and convenient when typically the things of God take time and are costly. How do we keep saying yes in that moment? One of the reasons why the early church grew is the testimony of martyrs. You know, in our story, what are Paul and Silas doing? They're praising God. I don't have any reason to believe that they were praising God because they thought that was going to be the key to knock down the prison walls. I think they were probably just as surprised as anybody else. I think they were praising God because that's simply the way that they lived. Their eyes were fixed on Jesus. And in their story, they got freed the next morning, it all turned out. But I'm convinced they would have kept praising God even if not. And the reason why is because there are so many accounts of Christian martyrdom that took place during this time where what would happen is Rome would execute Christians publicly and they would do it as a spectacle and a means to intimidate people from following Jesus. But it backfired on them. Because when they would execute Christians, men, women, and children, they'd have them there being publicly executed, but they would not be afraid. They'd have peace on their face and their body, and with joy, they'd be singing praises to God up until the moment that they died. The crowds would watch, and they couldn't understand the courage and the faith of these people, and it drew them to Christ, and that's partially how the church spread. It's a lifestyle of praise. And here, as we wrap up this morning, here's what I'd encourage us with of how do we apply this passage is I think we have to learn what it means to have a life that is a life of worship. The praise, the hymns, the prayers that Paul and Silas prayed and sung in this prison cell, I'm convinced, were the overflow of their life. It's just who they were. It was a life of worship that allowed them to endure because it wasn't about the fruit. It wasn't even about their own lives. It was about Jesus. And when you know him, his goodness, his kindness, and the way that he's redeemed you, you can't help but turn around and give it away for someone else. It's not a burden. It's painful. It's not always easy, but it's a joy because you're with him. I experienced this. I've grown up and matured over the years, and I've realized that a lot of times when God initiates with us, there's a cost to that initiation. And I've learned to count that cost a little more. I remember a couple years back, there was this kind of particularly messy relational thing that was going on and somebody needed to step in and help. And I was like standing outside and I had this moment where I saw the Macedonian man begging and then I had like a fast forward button to see what would happen if I went. It's like, yep, jail cell. Like I knew if I got involved in this situation, all that complexity was going to turn on me and it's going to be painful and stressful. But somebody had to do it, so I, I did it without the faith that these guys had. I did it in an angry kind of way. I was like, all right, God, I'll do it. Somebody has to. And guess what? It happened exactly like I thought it would. Like, everything was terrible. And in the midst of that, I went on this walk where I was complaining at God. Like, not, not even talking to God, just complaining at God. Like, God, I said, I don't need this in my life. Like, I could live a very happy life. I could love you. I could do good things. I could tithe. Like, I'll serve at church sometimes. Like, I, I could do all of that. I don't need this. Why did I say yes to you? Why? And it's like in that moment, God could have rebuked me, probably should have rebuked me. But in that moment, all I felt in my spirit was the smile of God. Yeah. 
felt like I saw his face smiling. And it dawned on me. Like I'm sitting there complaining at God, but I'm seeing his smile and it dawned on me that my act of saying yes, God received it as an act of worship. And I thought about it. Because my saying yes ultimately wasn't about the situation, but it was about him. It was about you want me to do this, I'll do it because I love you. And it's like I I had this immediate thought come to my mind. I, I think it was probably the Lord put it there. But I thought about this for a second. I thought, if there's a person who wanted to show me love, you know, there's a lot of ways you could, we could show each other love, aren't there? We could give you a gift, buy you a meal, take you on a vacation. But as I'm going through the ways that I show somebody love or someone could show me love, I was like, what would be the ultimate? And I landed on this. I thought if there was somebody who really wanted to show me love, the thing they could do for me that would be the most loving thing would be if they would take the time to love my children when my children didn't deserve to be loved. If somebody, because of their love for me, would be willing to go take care of my children, no matter how my children reacted towards them. My children are great, so not an issue at the moment. But if, if they did that, can you imagine how loved you would feel as a parent? Maybe you've even had somebody do that for you. Just they pursued and pursued and pursued. Not because that kid deserved it, but because the parent deserved it. They loved that way. Think of how you would feel as a parent, how loved you would feel as a parent. And I felt like I got just a tiny little taste of the way that God feels when we, in our response of yes, say, God, because I love you, I'm going to go care for them. Because I love you, I'm willing to step into the darkness. Because I love you, I'm willing to endure the pain of this world. Not because I have some right to see a breakthrough. Not because I think it's going to unfold the way that I want it to unfold. Most of the time it doesn't. But simply because I love you and this is my act of worship back to you. You've redeemed me, so I give my life back to you. This is my heart towards you. And in that moment, I felt an intimacy with God I've never felt before. Where I was with him. I got to just join in experience his love, his heart for others. Because God sees the jailer. He sees the slave girl. He sees the prisoner in our own day. He sees the people that are lonely, depressed. He sees all of that. And when we take that little step of faith to go live a life of worship that becomes a breakthrough from someone else, you're stepping into an intimacy with Jesus that I don't think words can describe. Amen? Why don't we stand? I want to read this passage of scripture. Many years later, Paul wrote this letter back to the church at Philippi. And I wonder as he's writing this, if if he's reflecting on his own time. In fact, the letter that he wrote, what I'm about to read you, many think it was an early Christian hymn. Could have even been the one that he he and Silas were singing. But this is what he said. He's kind of commending them. I want you to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Jesus stepped into our world when he didn't have to. He endured in our world when he didn't have to. He took on the worst of what we have when he didn't have to. And he modeled for us the way that we live. But then there's the other side of it where the walls come down. And just as Jesus himself conquered sin, death, and hell in the grave, when we say yes to him, we step into resurrection power and we see the breakthrough of his power in this life. That's our testimony and that's our hope. Amen.
But we're going to go into a time of ministry and a time of response. If you're on the ministry team, I'd love for you to just quickly make your way up to the front. I said this last week, and I want to say it again. This is not a rote thing that we do at the end of our services, but we do it because God is present. God is here in this room. And if you have need this morning, even right now, it could be totally unrelated to what I just prayed. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But if you have need, just start walking. Don't worry about somebody else around you. But don't leave here without somebody praying for you. God's here in this house. But this morning, I particularly want to pray for um, two groups of people. One, when you hear me share this story this morning, you may feel like you're the slave girl or the jailer. And if that's you, you feel like, I am far from God. I can't even think straight. I don't, I don't know what's going on in my life. I believe today's a day for you to find breakthrough. For God, just like he did in this story, he sees you. He's willing to send people across the ocean just to come so that you can find your deliverance. And even here in this room, there's people that want to stand with you and pray with you. If you need God today, please don't leave. Get the person you came with or come down to the front. We want to pray for you. But the second group of people I want to pray for this morning is those of you who you've said yes to God. And as I'm, as I'm preaching this morning, you realize that in your heart, you started to distance yourself because the yes cost more than you thought it would. And you realize I've disengaged. And this is not a message of condemnation. You're human. But it is a message to lift your eyes up again and fix your eyes on Jesus and say, okay, what does it take to get me back in the game of responding to him? And whether as the worship team leads us in a chorus or you want to come have somebody pray with you, I want to encourage you in this moment to, to, to do it out with God. Like just confess it, speak it, tell somebody else, and then ask God to come, give you the courage of what it means to say yes to him again. Let me pray. So if you need help, just come on down. Um, start walking now while I pray. Don't, don't miss this chance to get somebody to cover you in prayer. Jesus, I ask that you would come today. Lord, you give us grace to be willing to respond to your voice, to not quit, Lord, but to be willing to see what you're doing, that our lives would be an act of worship, God, that, that, that we wouldn't be people who respond to you only until the point where it costs us and then we back away, but we keep saying yes. And I ask this house to be marked by people who keep saying yes, who keep responding to Jesus, who keep being willing to, to look at you, to look into your eyes and as an act of worship to say, God, whatever you want, it's yours. Our lives are yours. Now lead us, Lord. And I pray as a community, Lord, will you lead us to the forgotten, to the broken, to the lonely, to those who need Christ. Lord, lead us to those in our workplace, in our campus, in our neighborhood, in our city. God, will you lead us? Lord, we want to be your hands and feet. Lord Jesus, we recognize that your intention is to come and bring a breakthrough. So God, use us in our frailty, in our weakness. Lord, we say yes to you as a people again today. And we lift our eyes up to you in Jesus' name.